0: Amen. Thanks, guys. That's a good line for uh, Resurrection Sunday morning. And until the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. That's our proclamation as Christians. You can go and take your Bibles, church, and uh, open up with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We started our service this morning reading one of the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus but I would just remind you that is not the only testimony we have in the Bible about Jesus' resurrection Uh, one of the claims that the Bible makes over and over again is that not only did Jesus die as our sin bearer in other words not only did Jesus die on the cross taking the judgment we deserve for our sin but he also rose from the dead and there are hundreds of people who saw him alive it's not just one guy tucked away in a cabin somewhere who says he had a vision of Jesus, it's dozens and dozens and dozens of people who said they saw Jesus alive with their own eyes and they were willing to die for what they claimed they had seen. And then on the other hand, think about it from the vantage point of Jesus' enemies. There was nothing they wanted more than to shut the whole Jesus movement down. And they thought they had done that once Jesus was executed. They thought they were done with Jesus and done with his followers once and for all. But within just a couple weeks, there was this exploding movement in Jerusalem of people who said they had seen Jesus alive. The movement hadn't stopped. It was growing. So if you were one of Jesus' enemies, what would have been the easiest way to shut that whole thing down? I mean, think about it. Jesus was crucified where? Jerusalem. Jesus was buried where? Jerusalem, this whole movement exploded of people saying Jesus had risen from the dead. Where did that movement begin? In Jerusalem. So if you're one of Jesus' enemies, there's a surefire way to shut the whole movement down. What is it? Just march out to the tomb, get his corpse, parade his corpse through Jerusalem, and in an instant, the whole thing stops. And if Jesus' enemies could have done that, they most certainly would have done that. But they couldn't do it because there was no body. The tomb was empty. Jesus had indeed risen. And we want to look this morning at one of the testimonies of someone who saw Jesus risen from the dead. We're going to start in just a second in John chapter 20, verse 24. But before we start there, let me just catch you up to speed on the first 20 verses or 23 verses of John chapter 20. So the Sunday morning right after Jesus' crucifixion, it started with a group of women going out into Jesus' tomb to finish preparing his body for burial. And you remember why that is. Jesus died late in the day, right before the beginning of Sabbath. And Sabbath began at sundown. You weren't allowed to do any work once Sabbath began. And so they didn't finish with Jesus' corpse on that Friday. And so they go back Sunday morning with their spices to finish preparing his body. But when the women get to the tomb, much to their shock... The heavy stone has been rolled back and the tomb is empty. And so they take off to Jerusalem to let the apostles know that something is awry here. And so John and Peter are the first ones to sprint out to the tomb to see what's happening. And they get there and they find it just like the women said. It it doesn't make any sense. The tomb, the, the stone's rolled back, the grave clothes are lying on the bench, but the body is gone. Well, grave robbers wouldn't unwrap a body first. And they certainly wouldn't nicely fold up the grave clothes when they leave. Burglars don't generally clean up after themselves. And so what in the world is happening? Well, as the day progresses, more and more reports start rolling in of people who said that they had seen Jesus alive. And so that Sunday evening, the apostles met together in a closed, locked room. Remember remember now, at this point, there's still all sorts of trepidation among Jesus' followers. Their their leader had been executed just a few days before, and the fear is, maybe the enemies are going to come after them next. And so they're hiding in this upper room meeting when all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the middle of the room. The doors are locked, and here Jesus is physically, visibly, bodily in front of them. And he shows them the scars on his hands and the scar in his side. So there is no doubt this is Jesus. And you can imagine, you can imagine how exhilarating this would have been for the apostles. They went from one minute all of their hopes and all of their dreams had been dashed to the next minute their faith has been restored. It's got to be one of those, the spiritual high point of their life, right? But, but. There was one of Jesus' followers who wasn't there in that first meeting. And that's whose story we're going to read about today. So if your Bible's open to John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. John 20, beginning in verse 24. John, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, writes these words. Now Thomas, called the twin... One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and then he even upset a level, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I want to think through this passage under four main headings. Number one, I want to see reasons for doubt. You know how with most Bible characters you immediately associate their name with something? For instance, if I say Noah, you immediately think Ark. If I say Daniel, you probably right away think Lion's Den. But what do you immediately think when I say Thomas? doubt right we've even nicknamed him unfortunately for Thomas we've even nicknamed him doubting Thomas which probably isn't fair I mean think about it in your own life how would you like to be nicknamed based on your most embarrassing sin how would you like to be called uh, lustful Larry or drunk Donna that would be a rough nickname to be stuck with but we think of Thomas as doubting Thomas And, and Thomas certainly did doubt right But he's not the only person in the Bible who ever struggled with doubt. Think of Job. In the middle of Job's trials, there was a time when Job doubted the goodness of God. Or think of John the Baptist. Do you remember when John the Baptist was languishing away in prison? And he doubted if Jesus was really the Messiah. He He even sent a couple of his followers to Jesus to say, Hey, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we be looking for somebody else? And that was John the Baptist. And that is not an unusual experience i don't think greg kukul the apologist who has stand to reason ministries he says that from all the christians he's talked to it seems that about 85 percent of christians at some point have had some kind of doubt or questions pernicious question that they've struggled with in fact what he says is 85 percent of of christians admit to having struggles with doubt and the other 15 percent are lying because the fact of the matter is listen life is messy and we're not omniscient so there are things in life that we don't understand there are times when, when our faith has loose ends and there are times when our lives have loose ends and you might have been through a season in your own life where you questioned God's goodness or does God really love me or maybe even something more significant like you, you questioned, can I really trust the Bible or is Jesus really the only way? And I would guess that on a, an Easter Sunday morning, there are probably some here this morning who might even now be in a season where they're struggling with doubt. And let me just say, if that's where you are, that's okay. It's Doubt isn't the problem. Unbelief is the problem. And the question is, what do you do with those doubts? That's the question. What do you do with doubt? Because what the Bible says, the Bible does not say that as Christians we have to ignore any questions we have. Like press them down and pretend they're not there and just keep smiling and act like everything's okay. It's not what the Bible tells us to do. Doubts have to be dealt with. A good way to think of it is doubt is like weeds. What if you got into your flower bed this week and there are some weeds growing and you don't do anything about it? What will be the case the next week and the next week? And the, those weeds keep growing and keep spreading until eventually the weeds take over the whole flower bed, right? Well, that's how doubt is. We don't ignore doubt. Doubt has to be dealt with. But here's another important part of that. Neither do we coddle doubts. If you're struggling with doubt and questions, we don't, we don't idolize doubt. One of the really weird things that's happened in Christianity over the last decade or two has been this idea that doubt is actually a good thing. That doubt's the sign that you're really a mature Christian because certainty is the mark of pride, we're told. And if you're certain about your faith, that's the mark that you're prideful. And if you're really humble, you have doubts and questions and you'll be unsure about everything. And so suddenly doubt has become cool, which I would just add is ridiculous. It's not doubt that pleases God. It's faith that pleases God. And God can work through doubts and questions to move us toward a stronger faith. And that's what we want. So we, we don't want to use doubt to pull away from God. We want to use doubt to press into God and find answers. Let me just say one other thing about doubt before we keep thinking about Thomas. Um, not all doubts are created equal. And what I mean by that is Doubts in a person's heart can come from lots of different sources. And one of the good things to do if you're struggling with doubt is to ask yourself where those doubts are coming from. I'll just give you a few examples. So sometimes doubt is just part of growing into a mature faith. And so you think of somebody who was raised in a Christian home, raised in a Christian worldview, they go off and start a job, and one day they're sitting around the lunch table with other people on their job, and somebody goes, hey, you're a Christian, right? And your parents were Christians. Well, have you met Muhammad over here? He's a Muslim, and his parents are Muslim. So have you ever thought that maybe the only reason you're a Christian is because your parents were Christians? At that moment, you have to figure out why you believe what you believe, and that's a good thing. In the life of every person who's raised in a Christian context, there has to come a point in your life where the Christian faith goes from being something you inherited to being something that you personally own. Something that belongs to you, that you believe. And that's a good transition to make. But other times, doubt is the result of some, some moral crisis in a person's life. And what I mean by that is there are times where I step away and doubt the Christian faith because it's standing in the way of something that I want to go after. Because one of the things that's crystal, crystal clear in the Christian faith is that God makes absolute moral claims and demands. The Christian confession is Jesus is Lord, Lord of every area, not just Lord of Sunday, but Lord of marriage and sexuality and job and career and everything and Jesus actually steps into every area of my life and says, this is right, that's wrong. This is good, that's evil. So if I'm wanting to go after something that the Bible, that Jesus says is wrong and evil, sometimes the easiest way for a person to do that is to start doubting or denying part of the Christian faith. Aldous Huxley was a famous atheist years ago, and in one of his books... He explains what it was that he found so attractive about atheism. And this has always struck me. I want you to listen to his description. Aldous Huxley wrote, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness, philosophy of meaninglessness is his word for atheism, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotical revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that the most attractive thing to him about the atheistic worldview, the most attractive thing is it gave him moral freedom. Particularly, he says, it gave him sexual freedom. Do you get the point he's making? He's saying, listen... If there is no God, then there are no rules. If there's no God, then there's no accountability. If there's no God, then I can live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do and never have to feel guilty about it at all. And because of that, he was drawn toward atheism. And that's, that's where a lot of people end up. Listen, there's very likely, some here this morning who you have doubts and questions about Christianity, but it's not genuine doubts and questions. You have doubts and questions because you have committed yourself to a certain lifestyle that's at odds with Scripture. You have committed yourself to pursue things that the Bible clearly says are off limits, and rather than repent of your lifestyle, you have chosen instead to step away from considering the faith. So sometimes doubts arise from a moral crisis. Uh, Other times, doubts come as the end result of a hundred little choices along the way. So think of a man, for instance, who decides that he's going to give himself over to his career. He's going to pursue money, and he is going to pursue success above everything else. He doesn't invest in his spiritual life. He doesn't invest in his family. He ignores all the warnings of his friends. And the next thing you know, one day he starts thinking to himself, you know, my wife doesn't really understand me. And of course, the next step is he ends up in an affair and his moral life spins out of control. And one day he finds himself looking in the mirror one morning and he thinks to himself, you know, I never believed all that stuff anyway. Well, he didn't just randomly decide to wake up one morning and doubt the whole faith his doubt was the result of a hundred little choices he made along the way. And we could keep going. Sometimes, sometimes doubt's a result of ignorance. People doubt because they've never been taught. No one's ever tried to help answer their questions. Sometimes doubt's the result of some trial where you go through something hard. Someone close to you dies. You go through some tragedy in childhood and you think, if there's a God, how could he let this happen? And there's all, all sorts of other things but one of the good things to do if you find doubts creeping up in your heart is to honestly evaluate where those doubts are coming from. I've told you before, I know I've shared it a lot but it it always struck me and I think it's absolutely true. Reading a book by a, a college pastor who said that it was not unusual for him, he would see kids would go off somewhere to school and they would come back home and and he would try to go out to breakfast with them, take them out to coffee, go grab lunch just to see how they were doing in their spiritual walk when they left home And he said it wasn't unusual to have a kid sit down across the table for him and say, when he asked how they were doing, to say, you know, honestly, I've been having some questions and doubting some things. And he said he had learned when he had a student say that to him, he would always immediately say, who are you sleeping with? Because he found in the lives of college students, those doubts about the faith were almost always tied to some sort of sexual sin that they were pursuing and the only way they could justify their sexual sin was by allowing doubt and questions to arise in their hearts so here we have doubting Thomas where did Thomas's doubts come from well Thomas's doubts came from this huge crisis in his life Thomas's doubts came from this massive disappointment in his life think of what Thomas's life has looked like He had spent the last three years of his life committed to following Jesus. He had abandoned everything. He was so convinced Jesus had to be the Messiah. Three years he had watched Jesus. He had heard his public sermons. He had listened to his private teaching. He had watched the consistency of Jesus' life. He had seen as an eyewitness Jesus' miracles. And if there was something Thomas was absolutely convinced of, it's that Jesus is the Messiah. But if there's something else Thomas was convinced of, it's that Messiahs don't die. And you can imagine how disconcerting this all was for Thomas as Jesus gets arrested and tried. And probably initially, he's waiting for Jesus to turn the tables. That's what Jesus did all the time. The religious leaders would think they had him backed into a corner, and in an instant, he would reverse the whole script on them. But that didn't happen. He's tried. He's found guilty. He's beaten. And I wonder if the trial progressed, if they're not waiting for some dramatic miracle. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Maybe he's going to do that, but then he's crucified and then he dies. And at that moment when Jesus lowers his head says, it is finished and dies, all of Thomas's hopes attached to Jesus fall apart. And Thomas thinks to himself, how did I miss it? Not to mention Jesus is a friend to Thomas. How would it affect you to watch a friend brutally murdered? And so here Thomas is with his mind spinning and his emotions frayed. And what makes matters even worse is on that first Sunday night, when the apostles of Jesus met together, Thomas wasn't there. He already seems to be distancing himself a little bit. And so when the other disciples show up that Monday going, Hey, Thomas, you'll never believe it. We saw Jesus alive. Thomas is skeptical. Fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me sort of thing, right? He bought it once, he is not going to buy it again. So Thomas says, the only way I'll believe it is if I could put my finger on his hand and put my hand into the wound I saw them make in his side. Otherwise, I'm going to assume y'all are lying or y'all are hallucinating or you saw a ghost. I will not believe. That's Thomas's verdict. So how does Jesus respond to Thomas in this story? Here's the second point, number two. I want to see Jesus' mercy toward doubters. And by the way, this is why we don't have to pretend everything's okay when we're struggling. This is why we don't have to to hide our doubts and our questions because Jesus deals with Thomas so graciously in this story. So now the story fast-forwards in the passage we just read. It fast-forwards to the next Sunday. And once again, Jesus' followers meet together in a closed-door meeting. And this time, Thomas is there. And I would just add, that's a good thing. So Thomas is doubting, but Thomas doesn't leave in his doubt. And even though Thomas is doubting, the other apostles don't throw him out in his doubts. Thomas is there with the other believers, which is exactly where he needed to be. If you're struggling with your faith, that is not the time to pull back. That's the time to lean in. So that's where Thomas is when all of a sudden, Jesus appears again. And he doesn't appear with flames shooting out of his eyes, as I would have been tempted to do. He doesn't appear and look at Thomas and go, Thomas, you buffoon. Why would you doubt me? You saw me raise Lazarus from the dead, right? You saw me feed the 5,000, right? Why would you doubt me now? Jesus doesn't show up. And say that to Thomas. He shows up and he deals with Thomas so, he deals with him so gently. In fact, the first thing Jesus says when he shows up in the room is peace to you. And that's not just a greeting. That is Jesus extending grace to these men. He is reminding these men of what his death accomplished. He hadn't just tragically died, he had died for a reason. Why had he died? He had died so that everyone who believes in him can have peace with God. That's why he died. Make sure you get that. Your understanding of the gospel in large part depends on how you understand yourself apart from Christ. We are not all naturally neutral before God. We are not all naturally entering this world as the children of God. We enter this world as God's creation, but we have to become His children. And we become His children by faith. We're naturally enemies of God because we have thumbed our nose at God in rebellion. But Jesus went to the cross to take that punishment for us. He hangs on the cross and He's forsaken As if he's the enemy of God, so that everyone who believes in him now has peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can now have peace in our souls. And that's what Thomas so desperately needed. Right, His soul is in turmoil. If if you have doubts seeping into your heart, I can tell you what your heart feels like. It feels like there is a storm brewing in your life. It is turned upside down. So how would, how would that uneasiness be settled? This is how. Thomas's uneasiness was settled by encountering Jesus. Listen, the only way you will ever have rest, the only way your doubts will ever subside, it won't come by walking away from Jesus. It'll come by pressing into Jesus. And you can do that because Jesus is remarkably gracious toward us in our struggles. Here's the third thing. Number three, I want you to see Jesus' command to doubters. Jesus' command to doubters. So picture the scene in your mind. You have this meeting of Jesus' followers when all of a sudden Jesus appears right in the middle of the room. Now imagine how stunned everyone is. But for the other apostles, they had seen this before. They had seen the same thing happening just the Sunday night before but for Thomas this is the first time he has seen Jesus since he was crucified and Jesus shows up and he immediately turns his attention to Thomas and he says Thomas take your finger and you put it right here on the wound on my hand and you take your hand and you put it right here on the scar on my side. Now just pause for a minute how did Jesus even know Thomas had asked that Thomas hadn't said that in a prayer it's not like he turned to God and said God please let me put my finger on the Thomas had said that to the other apostles very cynically. He had said it actually from a position of doubt, and yet, even though Jesus wasn't there, he had heard Thomas's question. Good reminder to us. Even though Jesus isn't here physically, he hears us, and he knows what's going on in our hearts, which is just another reason why it's so foolish to think I can hide from him what's going on. So Jesus shows up and... Says, put your fingers here. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 27. Last phrase of verse 27 is key. Jesus says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. In other words, stop doubting and believe. And I would just say to you this morning that is still what Jesus says. So when I said earlier that Jesus is patient with us in our doubts, that's true, but don't mistake that to mean that Jesus is content with us in our doubts. It is not doubt that pleases Christ, it is faith that pleases Christ. So he calls us to step out of the shadows of doubt and to step into the light of trusting him. And that's still what some of us likely need to do this morning. Yes, ask your questions, look for answers, then trust Jesus. Get off the fence. Stop using your doubts and questions as an excuse to stay in the lifestyle that you know is wrong before God. And Jesus is saying, stop doubting and believe. That's his command. Then here's the final thing, number four. I want to make a point about moving from doubt to faith. Moving from doubt to faith. One of the interesting things to me in this story is we're never actually told if Thomas accepts the invitation. So Jesus says, put your finger here and put your hand here. And the text never actually tells us if he does that or not. In fact, the implication to me is that he does not That just seeing Jesus is more than enough for Thomas so that Thomas hits his knees and says... My Lord and my God. And what makes him do that? I mean, he falls down and says, Jesus is my God. Thomas had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. He didn't call Lazarus God. So what happens here with Jesus? Well, think of what's happened. It's been a week now since the first report surfaced about Jesus being raised. And can you imagine all that's been swirling in Thomas' mind over these last eight days? He can't be alive, can he? But the women say they saw him alive. No, the Messiah is not going to die, but I saw him open the eyes of the blind. Only the Messiah can do that. And can you imagine the back and forth argument in his own head? And as Thomas remembers the words that Jesus had spoken, do you remember just before Jesus was arrested in John 14? Do you remember what he said to the apostles? He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. A clear claim to deity from Jesus and right here at this moment, when Jesus appears, all of that comes crashing together in Thomas's mind. And for the first moment, it all becomes crystal clear to Thomas. My Lord and my God. It's one of the clearest claims to the deity of Jesus that you find in the Gospels. In fact, when you have those guys show up at your door and they go, well, Jesus isn't really God. He's created being. He's Michael, the archangel. This is a good passage to turn to. I'm going to stand where Thomas stood. I, th- I think I'll agree with Thomas, not you. Thomas said, Jesus is my Lord and my God. And by the way, that brings John's gospel full circle. Because how does John start his gospel? By telling us Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was, what's the next word? God. John starts his gospel saying, Jesus is God. And then he spends the next 19 chapters giving us proof that he's God, and now he ends it. The rest of this book is really epilogue. He ends it now with Thomas reaching the conclusion John started with. Yes, he is my Lord and my God, Thomas says. And don't miss that key word. Thomas doesn't just say Jesus is Lord and God. This isn't just some liturgical confession. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. That's not what this is. Key word here is my. This is intensely personal. Personal. If you leave the word my out, this is something demons can say. Demons believe Jesus is Lord and God. And I would add, not only do demons say that, that's where where a lot of people's faith stops. Let me get even more personal. No doubt there are people here this morning, and that's the extent of your faith. You would say this morning, oh yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Oh yeah, I I believe he's Lord, I believe he's God. That's not the question. The question is, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your God? Is there any evidence in your life that would genuinely lead someone to believe Jesus is your personal Lord? Does the the profession of your mouth and the testimony of your life give evidence to the fact that Jesus is your Lord and your God? That's where this whole thing is meant to leave us. And then we have these words from Jesus. Pick up in verse 29 and we'll read through the end as we wrap up. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Do you get what Jesus is saying in verse 29? Thomas and the other disciples believe because they saw Jesus, and that's fine. But you see how in that verse Jesus is looking beyond the disciples to us. And Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you saw me, but blessed are those who will not believe, excuse me, who will not see, and yet they will still believe. Who's he looking to there? He's looking to us. We've never seen Jesus. We've never been able to lay our hands on Jesus' body like Thomas had the option of doing, yet we still believe. Why? Did we, did we just decide to take some blind leap into the dark? No, we believe because of men like Thomas and Matthew and Peter and John and James and Paul, because of their eyewitness accounts that they saw Jesus. And now, how does Paul say it? And now, fate comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God we still see Jesus just not with these eyes we see Jesus through the eyes of faith as we read this book so if you find your if you find your heart with nagging doubts what's the way forward maybe think of it like this imagine a glass that's filled with water filled to the brim with water and you start dropping pebbles in that glass and every pebble you drop in that glass a little bit of water is forced out of it right The more pebbles you drop in, the more water is evacuated. You fill that glass up with pebbles and the water is completely eliminated from the glass. Well, that's like having a heart filled with doubt is like that glass of water. How do you you get the doubts? How do you deal with the doubts? By dropping in pebbles of faith. Where does faith come from? It comes by encountering Jesus in his word. As you read God's Word, as you put yourself under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, as you engage your heart and mind with God's Word, pebbles are dropped in, your faith grows, and doubts subside. And John ends this chapter by saying that's the whole reason why he wrote this letter. There's lots of other stuff John could have included. Jesus preached other sermons, and Jesus did other miracles, but John included what he did, So that we could see clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and so that we would believe. So we call him Doubting Thomas, but you see, this isn't really a story about doubt. It's a story about change. It's a story about a man who goes from doubt to absolute, rock-solid, steadfast confidence. In who Jesus is. That's, that's the story. And by the way, tradition tells us that Thomas ended up carrying the gospel after this into India. And if that's true, that would make Thomas the only apostle that actually left the realm of the Roman Empire with the gospel. And trad- tradition says that there in India, he became a martyr for the faith. So Thomas went from doubting his faith to dying for the faith. How about you? Jesus is patient with us in our struggles, but not indefinitely patient. Isn't it time to move forward? Isn't it time to do something about doubts and questions? To actually lean in? To pursue answers? Isn't it time to get off the fence and to come like Thomas and bow before this King Jesus and say, my Lord and my God? That's the call of John 20. Will you bow with me before a word of prayer? And we always take some time after we examine God's Word as His people to go to the Lord individually. And so we're going to give you a few minutes there in your seat to call out to God. To thank God for the fact that the Savior we're here to worship is a risen, living, reigning Savior. And if you've been going through a season of doubt and question, make commitment in your seat. You're going to, you're going to pursue answers to that. You're not going to use questions to lean away. You're going to use questions to lean in, to pursue answers, to figure out the path forward. Evaluate your heart, the reasons for the doubts. Could it be it's been a hundred little choices along the way that's led you to this moment? Or could could it be that there's some moral commitment you've made in your life, a lifestyle you've given yourself to that's just made doubting make that lifestyle easier? If that's where you are, repent of that. Call it what it is. Jesus is king. He does make claims. So repent of living at odds with him. And come before Christ like Thomas and say, My Lord and my God.